I have opened my Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I invite you to do the same. Confirm it forever. We're looking this morning at David's prayer of thanks. I had a little incident this week that had me concerned. Um, There's something that uh, I look at often, maybe you've seen it too, it's called informed delivery that the post office offers, and it's supposed to tell you what mail you're getting that day, or in the days ahead, or packages, and it can be a pretty helpful tool. Uh, It doesn't always work. My DMV renewal was coming in the mail, you know, with the stickers you put on your car, both vehicles in one envelope, and it says, it's coming today. And I'm eagerly waiting. Uh, good, I need to get this. It's getting close. And it didn't come. And I thought, who took it? Did a dog eat it? Did the mailman lose it? Did they misdeliver it? And I wait and wait. And fortunately, it did show up later in a, on another day. But I thought, you know, that's an example. Without putting down the post office. Now, hear me. My dad was a full-time letter carrier for years. And my brother is retired from the post office. So I have reason to be against the post office. But I'm not against them necessarily. But... But, you know, they make kind of soft promises about delivery, and they're not always able to deliver, are they? And it's not just the post office, it's UPS, and that package you order at Christmas, and you're tracking it, and it's stuck somewhere in Ohio for who knows how long. Sometimes people are not able to deliver what they promise. They're not God. Thank God there is a God who always delivers on his promises. And David, in this passage we're looking at today, is full of faith and thanks in the promises that the Lord has made to him as he has revealed to him what we call the Davidic covenant. And what we're going to see in this passage today is that David responds to God's covenant by praising him for his great grace and praying for the fulfillment of his great promises. This chapter, 2 Samuel 7, is one of the great mountain peaks of the Bible. I shared with you in the previous weeks how this is one of the longest speeches of God in the Old Testament, the longest since the days of Moses. It is a a, a vitally important part of the entire Scriptures, and Old Testament and New Testament look back to this text again and again. Our Lord Jesus' role is partly laid out in outline form as the king who will bring to completion God's great plan. Well, today we're looking at David's response to that, which begins in verse 18 of 2 Samuel. And this prayer of David's is remarkable also. It is the second longest prayer in the books of Samuel. It is the third longest prayer in the Old Testament, if you don't count the Psalms. It's full, not only of thanks, but of theology, of a mature reflection on what the Lord is doing. There are some key words we're going to see this morning as we work our way through David's prayer. Ten times you're going to hear the phrase, your servant. David, the great king, great things have been promised about him, knows that in the end there's someone greater than him. The king serves the king. Seven times you're going to see the name Lord God. And the exact phrase that's used in Hebrew is very unique. It means Master Yahweh. It's a rarely used title. Only shows up in key parts of the Old Testament. We'll talk some more about that. 
Seven times David is going to mention my house. And he doesn't mean the brick and mortar one he had. He meant the dynasty that the Lord had promised to him in the verses that came before. And a number of times he'll talk about things that are great. Greatness, great promises, great word, and even magnify, which means to make great. There are some profoundly great things in these verses. We're going to go a little more slowly at the beginning of it, and you'll be worried that I'm not going to finish. But then as we move along further, we'll pick up the pace a little bit. And what we'll see in this section, and we're going to read it piece by piece for the sake of time, is that David responds to God's covenant by praising him for his great grace and praying for the fulfillment of his great promises. Here's a little preview of three points to break down this prayer. We'll see, firstly, David's grateful thanks, and then how David talks about God's greater glory, and thirdly, about David's growing boldness. Well, let's consider that first point, David's grateful thanks, and that is revealed in verses 18 to 21. And at this point, we'll read those verses now. Verse 18, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. For you have chosen also the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. Now the first thing that stands out is that David is not standing when he says all of this. Go back to verse 18 and notice David's unique posture. It says there in verse 18 that David the king went in and sat before the Lord. That's, that's unique in two ways. Firstly, it is the only time in all the Bible that someone is said to sit while they pray. I made a comment, I think maybe it was a Sunday night or two ago, that that you never see anyone sitting in the Bible when they pray. and That's almost true. This is the one exception. Normally, the posture is standing or bowing. But sitting is not... And it doesn't mean no one ever did, but it's never mentioned. And then also, David sat before the Lord. That, what that seems to mean is that David has gone to that tent that he erected in Jerusalem where he put the Ark of the Covenant. And David has gone to that place. It is not the full tabernacle. The rest of the tabernacle is still in another place. It's not been united into a single worship center yet. That will happen in the days to come. Maybe this tent that he has set up had compartments within it, and he has gone into one of them. We're not told that he's staring at the ark itself, but he is in the proximity of the Lord's presence, symbolic presence there at the ark. And he's sitting. And it's clear by what David prays Afterwards, that there's no disrespect meant. It's not as if David is trying to, you know, push God off his throne and take his place. But sitting is the posture of kings. And the Lord has just revealed to him the verses before about how the Lord is going to establish his throne. And it's as if that David is sitting in the position which the Lord has now promised him. He only has that posture because of grace. And thankfulness will come out of his heart as he thinks about all that the Lord has promised. 
There's some sense, you know, that grace enables us to have a peace in God's presence that we could not have otherwise. God's presence, sometimes in the, in the Bible, is a terrifying thing. Uh, you know, we talk about the fear of the Lord. Sometimes it, it's the terror of the Lord. But that's not the way God's people are intended to live their whole spiritual life, always terrorized by God. Notice this sense of peace that he has because he believes in God's grace to him. He's not being presumptuous. He's not being proud. But he's at peace because of what God has promised. How good that the gospel promises us that we can be in God's presence and not be consumed. The gospel tells us that God's presence is actually within us. And while that ought to motivate us to live holy lives and to be separated unto the Lord, the thought of God dwelling in us is not intended to scare us to death, but to encourage us that his promises that he's made through Jesus will be fulfilled. Well, whatever the exact reason that David is sitting, and there's a little bit of debate, we can say that at the same time he's sitting, he's also standing. He's standing on God's promises that have just been made to him through Nathan the prophet. This act of David was probably a public act. I don't think this is him in his prayer closet. There were witnesses on hand, witnesses who would write for us this vocal prayer that David would, would make. David is, in a way, serving as an example to the people of how to be thankful for grace. David's unique posture, we see that in verse 18. And as we keep going in verse 18 and into the next verse, we read about God's undeserved favor. David asks, Who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you've brought me thus far? These lines remove any sense of pride that we might think David could have had for coming into God's presence like this. He's looking back on all that God has brought him through, and it causes him to marvel at God's grace. Who am I? He's mindful of where he came from. In fact, the Lord had told him, look back at verse 8, and the Lord reminded him what, the Lord, what he had done for him. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. How far was it that God had brought David? Well, in terms of geography, it wasn't that far. Bethlehem, you know, Bethlehem was only six miles away from Jerusalem. But from David to get chasing sheep six miles away to sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, my, that took, it was ten years of intrigue. Twenty-one chapters of stories before we get to this place full of danger, mistakes, distrust, near-death experiences. But the Lord had his eye and hand on David. And David is marveling at how far God has brought him. But now the covenant that the Lord has made with him is taking him exponentially further. And that's why he says there in verse 19, and yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, meaning how you got me from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, I mean, in comparison with what you just said, that's a small thing. That was nothing. Now, to David, it was a lot. But compared to what the Lord had prophesied about the house of David going on and on and God's kingdom plan for the world unfolding through David's line, that made everything else seem small. 
And David knows that he is unworthy of his grace. And even his house, his extended family, and the dynasty that would come after him. Neither he nor the family could have bragging rights, well, God knew how good we would be. In fact, as the centuries unfold, you see that David's house isn't so great after all. But God's grace was a different matter. The one exception to David's line of being worthy of anything is the end of the line, Jesus. He's the one who made no faults and that received no discipline for his own sins. You know, God's grace, God's grace is not at all about how worthy we are. God looking down and, oh, these are such good people, they need help. It's not even about how worthy we will become because we are left to ourselves. We are worthless. We, we are, yes, made in the image of God and we are loved, but not because we are so great. It's only because His grace is so great. One of the indicators that reveals David sees this, this plan that's been revealed to him through the prophet is so big is the way he refers to the Lord here. If I want you to look very closely at your Bible in the middle of verse 18, he says, Who am I, O Lord God? Now, in, in the version I'm using, they have typed that in a particular way. There, there's a capital L on Lord, but then look at the word God. In, in some of our versions, all three letters are capitalized. And that's a little cue to you and me that in the Hebrew Bible, what that says is Master Yahweh, Lord Yahweh. This is a rare title for God, and it's used seven times in this prayer. You know when it was used before? When Abraham prayed to God about the promises he was making to him, about uh, descendants who would be a blessing to the whole world. It was used by Moses when he recounted how God had brought amazing deliverance to the people, bringing them out of captivity up to the edge of the land. It was used by Joshua when he talked about the great deeds that God had done and bring the people into the land. Used by Gideon and Samson, looking back to great things, always in context of greatness. David can tell what, he's what God has announced here is one of those great times in sacred history. The sovereign Yahweh is at work. He's on the move. Not only is there good news for David, but look how verse 19 mentions concerning the distant future. This promise made to David about the, the throne being established and your son sitting on your throne, he'll build me. It doesn't stop with Solomon. It's going to go on and on and on. It's going to be, as the Lord said repeatedly, forever. David says, you've spoken this to, verse 19, your servant, the first of ten times that David will call himself that. The Lord had called him my servant in verses 5 and 8, and that title stuck with him. In bearing that title, servant, servant of God, David is on one hand humbled. He's a king, but in another sense, he's a slave. He's the Lord's slave. And you always, we as God's people always need to maintain that perspective. We, we are called many things in Scripture as God's people. We're called sons and daughters. Uh, we're called friends. 
But we're also repeatedly called servants. And we need all of those titles to understand a relationship with the Lord, but let's never set that one aside. He is our master. David is humbled by that thought, but he's also honored by that thought because there's never, ever been a master like the Lord. Good, gracious, powerful, one who shares his glory with his servants. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord Christ. We are his, and we are humbled to be called by his name, but we are also supremely honored to serve him. Look with me now at verses, uh, the rest of verse 19 into 21, where we see God's unparalleled plan. At the very end of verse 19 is a little phrase that is about God's kingdom charter. I want you to look at the very last phrase of verse 19. The New American Standard puts it this way, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God, O Yahweh Master. This is the custom of man. That is a puzzling little phrase. In fact, if you have a different Bible in your lap, it probably reads a little differently. There are six different translations I've found of this phrase out there. Some of them are like this. And this is the custom of man, like we have here, the NIV. And this is your usual, is this your usual way of dealing with man? Is this the manner of man? May may this be instruction for the people, another version has. This is a difficult little phrase. and The Hebrew words are not hard, but what they're doing here is uh, created a lot of controversy. There has been some excellent research to argue that the way to understand this, the word for custom is the word Torah. Sometimes that means law. But it doesn't only mean that. It can also mean something like a charter. That is a, a document that sets out the way things are going to be, in this case for the kingdom. Here is a, what I think is a good translation of this phrase that fits into the context well. For this is the charter of mankind, O Lord Yahweh. The charter of humanity The charter of humanity. Lord, what you have promised to me is part of your bigger plan for mankind. It's not just about me and my family or even this country. This is part of your kingdom plan announced way back in ages past. When Adam and Eve were put into the garden, God told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and what? And rule. God made Adam and Eve his regents on the earth. Uh, they didn't do a very good job ruling in God's stead. But God did not abandon his kingdom plan, and he picks another man out of the earth. Centuries later, he picks out Abraham and tells him that he's going to be fruitful and multiply, and his seed will be a blessing to all the earth. And we learn as time passes on, as God reveals more to Isaac and then to Jacob, that of that seed there will be a king who will rule over the people through whom blessing will come to the world. This charter of humanity that's been revealed throughout Scripture, David is saying, your promise to me fits right into that. This is the charter of humanity. Walt Kaiser puts it this way, what God had promised David was no brand new theme unrelated to previous blessings of his promised plan. Already there had been a long development of theology that could inform and contribute to David's covenant, 
the blessing of Abraham was being continued through the blessing of David. The kingship of Israel was good news to the whole world, not just Israel. And the New Testament makes that explicitly clear. King Jesus is not just the Lord of Israel. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is, he is assembling to himself a people of every tribe and tongue and, he is, and nation. He is making for himself a kingdom of priests. And the glory and the fullness of his realm will be seen in all its greatness. That which has begun will be seen in all its greatness when he comes again. In verse 20, we see God's personal choice on display. Verse 20, again, what more can, your, can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Uh, David is left speechless. Now, he'll keep talking for nine more verses, but, uh, but a lot of what he says in the verses that follow is repetitive. There's a lot of repetition. It's kind of like the way Charles Wesley puts it in his hymn when he says, we're lost in wonder, love, and praise. The second half of verse 20 says, You know your servant, O Master Yahweh. And that's not just that God knew everything about him or that God had foreknowledge, which of course he does, but this is the language of choice. It's the language of choice. Let me read to you another couple verses where this same word is used in this way. Listen to Genesis 18, verse 19, where the Lord says, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. I have chosen him. Literally, I have known him. Listen to Amos 3, verse 2. The Lord says to Israel, You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Literally, you only have I known now, obviously, God knows everybody and everyone. So th- the knowledge here has this sense of intimacy, some kind of an intimate plan that the Lord has. And that's the way the Lord had been with David. The Lord chose him. Part of the Lord's knowledge is his knowing how uh, unworthy we are in and of ourselves. David, uh, the Lord chooses people despite their unworthiness. Of course, that's true. How wonderful it is that God uses us and calls us anyway. He's not looking for choice specimens. Ah, these are the kind of people who can do great things. No, that's not the way it works at all. God's grace is an anyway kind of grace. I'm going to use you anyway. A grace that comes despite ourselves and our unworthiness. And it is no excuse for sin. Far be it, God forbid, that we should sin, that grace may abound. No, that's the wrong way to look at it. But God's grace is not based on our merits. And David understands that in his, God's choosing him as the head of this great line. Verse 21 talks about God's revealed will. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. Yahweh's knowledge of David leads to David having knowledge, knowledge of God in a choice relationship with him. God has revealed greatness to him. And it was all in line with God's purposes. The great purposes made known earlier in ages past to Adam and Abraham, and Jacob, and Moses. It was in line with what God had previously revealed for his kingdom, 
to put down the enemy and to establish righteousness in the world. David didn't receive it because God knew how important he was or how good he would be. You did it according to your own heart, the verse says. According to your own heart. This phrase here is similar to one that's used elsewhere about David. There's a phrase that's repeated a number of times. It says David, something like this, David was a man after God's own heart. And it's been very common for Bible teachers to say, and and for believers to say, that that means David's heart was bent towards the Lord. And of course, it's true that David's heart was bent towards the Lord, but that's not really what that phrase is about. The phrase is not so much about what David's heart was like, but how the Lord had set his own heart on David. A man after God's own heart, that means that God had placed his heart on David. It's an expression of selection and choice. God did that to David as opposed to what he did with Saul. Saul, God allowed. In a sense, he was chosen for a time, but not to begin the line that would bring about our Lord Jesus. God's heart was set on him, and that's why David's heart was set on God. I shared recently, you know, that the the effect of grace in David's life versus Saul's life is so evidenced in the Psalms. I mean, what, 75 times or so, a Psalm of David. You know what you never find in the Psalms? You never find a Psalm of Saul. Their heart orientation was totally different, and that's because of the Lord's work. It's like what John says in 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. So these first four verses are about David's grateful thanks. Now let's go to verses 22 to 25, which are about God's greater glory. We'll read now, beginning at verse 22. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land? Before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. In these verses, David turns to praising God for his greatness. He doesn't ask the Lord anything in these words. He just exults exalts. You know what that is? Exalting, we know that. That's lifting up God and praising Him. Exulting with a U. That's rejoicing in God as we praise Him. David's words here are similar to what Moses uttered in Deuteronomy 3.24 when he said, O Lord God, O Master Yahweh, You have begun to show your servants your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? David is borrowing language from Moses. And what he says about God's greater glory in verse 22 is firstly that he is an incomparable God. 
You, you are great, O oh Lord God. There's none like you. There's no one besides you. According to all that we've heard with our ears, verse 22 says. There's none like you. David is not only echoing the words of Moses from 400 years earlier, he's echoing the words of Hannah about uh, some 70, 80 years earlier. The mother of Samuel in 1 Samuel 2, she uttered a, a great prayer of thanks. You know, I didn't mention this earlier, but the books of Samuel, which was one big book, it has three great prayers. In the beginning with Hannah, in the middle right here with David, and at the end again with David at the end of his reign. And David seems to have some awareness of what Hannah had prayed. Maybe Samuel had shared it with him over the years. And what we have in David's words here are one of the greatest statements in the Bible about monotheism, that there really is only one God. Not just that God is greater than other gods, but that's true, but that's because the other gods aren't really gods. They're, quote, air quote, gods. David's knowledge of the surpassing greatness of of the Lord is due to the word that has been revealed to him. David has heard all the great things that God has done and will do. And so faith has come to him, as in his faith has come by hearing. And of course, hearing, that kind of hearing, is by the word of God. The word of promise David has received has revealed to him a God of great glory and grace. You know, in the years to come, David's house, his lineage would amass tremendous glory. But none of it would ever, ever come close to the exceeding glory of God. A couple centuries ago, King Louis XIV, the regent of France, died. And before he died, he planned out his own funeral for great effect. The funeral was going to be in Notre Dame in the cathedral. And he had arranged it. Apparently, during the daytime, the service would be. But all lights would be extinguished except for one candle on the casket, as if to say he was such a great light. The minister got up to give the message, and the first thing he did was snuff out the candle (laughs) and said twice, only God is great. (laughs) We can't hold a candle to God's greater glory, no matter how much he uses us or what he does through us. Him, to him, is the glory forever and ever. He's an incomparable God. Verses 23 and 24 teach that he has incomparable grace. I mean, it's, it's awesome grace, according to verse 23. What one nation on earth is like your people, Israel, who, whom, we, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods? Now, do you, do you sense that? But there's a lot of repetition in there. It's, it's almost like David is rambling. But it's joyful rambling. It's the joyful repetition of gratitude as David is lost in wonder. And he's not even thinking about himself at this point. He's thinking about all the great things that God has done bringing him up to this point. The topic is really more on the nation of Israel here than David. How God had chosen Israel of all the nations of the world, not because Israel was worthy or they were so great or they looked good or anything. He chose them for his own 
purposes. And, and those purposes were revealed by showing grace, by redeeming a people for himself, by showing glory, by making a name for himself, and by showing power, doing a great thing. Three times God's people, that word is used, they're identified as your people, Israel, and they are a redeemed people. They redeemed from, the, uh, from a tremendous, huge power. The, the Egypt was enormously powerful. When the Israelites were in the land of Egypt, they would have seen amazing architecture. I mean, the pyramids were already there when the Israelites were there, many of them. Huge temples. I mean, enormous temples. And their God had nothing. By the time they get to Mount Sinai, they build him a box and a tent. <laughs> but look what their God did. That was a display of glory and power as his redeeming hand brought them out. The gods, the many gods of Egypt couldn't do a thing. And all of this was for God's greater glory. You know, our great Savior has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light that we might show forth the excellencies of His grace. The purpose of God's redemption is His glory, His glory to be revealed in the earth. Awesome grace. And then verse 24 speaks about the unique relationship that God has with His people. For, excuse me, verse 24. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Even more than the previous verse, this one speaks of that unique relationship that the God of the Bible had with the nation of Israel. No other ethnic people in the world shared this place. It was through them that the Scripture would be given. It was through them that the promises of blessing to the world would be made. It was through them that the Savior would come. And of course, that doesn't make all Hebrews or all Jews automatically saved. Far from it. But all Jews are blessed to be part of this unique chosen people. The language of the Lord here, of David in verse 24, is almost like the language of marriage. The Lord's people, His very own. As Ralph Davis puts it, Israel is the people who have Yahweh as their God, and He redeems from bondage and keeps them through history. And that's not enough for Yahweh. He gives Himself to Israel to belong to them to be their God. What a self-giving God. You and I are not Israelites. Uh, we, we're not ethnic Hebrews. Maybe, maybe there is one or two of you with Hebrew lineage. I don't know. But most of us, I think, are Gentiles who've come to believe in Israel's Messiah. We have been, by grace, grafted into God's kingdom plan. We are a part of what Paul calls the bride of Christ, a, a people not only redeemed but brought into union with the Lord. This is all ties in with the charter of humanity that was revealed here to David. God's greater glory. And now we come to the final portion of David's prayer. And this is about David's growing boldness. We pick up our reading in verse 25. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. 
And may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Three times in that prayer, David uh, punctuates his comments with now. You see it there at the beginning of verse 25. Now, therefore, and look ahead now to verse 28 briefly. Now, O Lord God, and look again then at verse 29. Now, therefore, there, there's David's three points in this part of the prayer. And that first point is asking for active confirmation. Asking for active confirmation. He says in the middle of verse 25, confirm it forever. And he's asking this for God's glory. Uh, Verse 26 says it specifically, why he's praying this way, that your name may be magnified, that your name might be made great, that people would say, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. David asks the Lord in 25 and 26, do it, God. Do what you've said. Asking for confirmation, he's not like calling up Nathan. Hey, can you make sure that that was right? (laughs) I just want to get confirmation. That sounded a little too good to believe. It's not that kind of verbal confirmation. He's asking for active confirmation. Lord, you said it. Now do it. Do it for your own namesake, for your glory. Do it forever. This is a promise that would roll throughout history. And as the New Testament makes clear, on into the eternal state. The Lord of hosts is at work. The God of battles has a war plan to bring about His kingdom and His glory. Praying for God's glory is one of the best ways for us to seek our own good. Praying for God's glory ought to color everything we do. I want you to think about the way that the Lord Jesus taught His disciples to pray. The Lord's prayer does not go this way. Our Father who is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so That's not how it goes, is it? How does it begin? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's where our prayers need to begin. If not with those words, with that sentiment. God's glory comes first. And in pursuing God's glory, we find our good. That's how David prays here. For God's glory. And he asks for active confirmation through God's action. Verse 26 in the middle of it says, And may the house of your servant David be established before you. David's just repeating God's words. God had said this, I will establish your house. David is just repeating back to God what he said. And by David saying this, he's not praying in doubt. He's not like, well, that sounded too good to be true. I better make sure. Is that what you meant? <laughs> no, this is an expression of faith. David is a great example here of praying in accordance with God's Word. 
holding on to what he has said and asking him to do it. The Bible often does this. God has promised to do things, and yet we're instructed to pray for them. I mean, the the Scriptures tell us that King Jesus is coming back, and the date and the time is fixed. It's, It's not a mystery to heaven, and yet we're told to pray for it. How does the book of Revelation end? One of the last sentences in Revelation, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's praying God's will. That's what David's doing here. Praying that way aligns our hearts with God's revealed will. This confirmation David seeks is also uh, according to God's promise, as verse 27 reveals, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David admits here, this is bold talk. You know, the the Hebrew text has, you know, imperatives, commands. When we pray, sometimes we use the language of command. But but let's, let's be clear, as it was clear to David, that does not put us in a position of authority over God. All we're doing when we pray that way is asking God to do what he said he will do. It's the only way we can come boldly before the throne of grace. It's on the basis of His Word. It's on the basis of the grace that has opened up the way for us. The difference between boldness and arrogance before God is an understanding of grace. When we don't understand grace, we're proud and uppity. (laughs) But when we understand grace, we're humbled and yet made confident. He's asking for active confirmation, and also in verse 28, David's growing boldness is seen in that he's rejoicing in divine certainty. Verse 28, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. This is a a verse of pure praise, and not, not just praise, it's also an expression of trust. Telling God how true He is and how reliable He is, we're not stroking God's ego. No, we're partly reminding ourselves of how much we need Him and how much we trust Him. David is confessing his faith in Yahweh. This is a high point for David. It's a a time of great joy, but David will need to remember these promises when he goes into the low points too. When he goes into the low points of life, partly due to his own sin, due also to the sin of other peoples, he will hold on to these promises still. It's important for us to rehearse to ourselves the trustworthiness of God, not only in those great times of joy, but to do it so frequently that in every circumstance, in every high and stormy gale, we know that our anchor holds within the veil. We come now to verse 29 and the end of this prayer where he is seeking everlasting blessing. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Three times refers to blessing. 
And David is using the language of the promises made to Abraham many centuries before. David sees that it's going to be through his line, that his family propagating one king after the next, after the next, and on into the ages, that the blessing promised to the whole nation and to the whole world, to Abraham, would come through him. God's asking, David is asking God to do what he's promised. Yes, David was sitting in God's presence, and yet it's very clear he's also standing on God's promises. And I tell you, that is the best way for us to know God's blessing through David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, to be at peace in a relationship of peace and faith with Him. And we can sit in His presence and at the same time stand on His promises that all He said is yes and amen. This promise of God sounds almost too good to be true. And, you know, in the centuries that would follow, there would be Israelites who would come to think it was too good to be true, that it wouldn't work, that they needed something else. That's because the plans of man so often fail. Big plans often fail. Sometimes we hear about grand plans that governments have or businesses have, and we think, nah, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. My dad, in addition to being a pastor for 34 years, was a letter carrier for much of that time, and he was working as a letter carrier in Washington, D.C. in the late 50s when they introduced one of the great new sorting machines. And it was a big day, because it was supposed to eliminate a lot of manual labor, and these machines, huge machines that would fill up a large part of this room, were chugging out mail and separating it. They, They invited the inspector general of the post office to come look at it for this unveiling. And my dad was there in the background, and they turned on the machine, and all of a sudden, <laughs> mail's flying everywhere. Uh, the whole thing is a total disaster. They had to pull the plug. It's a great disgrace. Back to the drawing board. They couldn't deliver. <laughs> Isn't it great that our great God, His plans aren't like that? He is able to deliver all that He's promised. And it doesn't matter how long it takes or how many generations it takes. He is true to his plan, and he will bring it about. And we know from the New Testament that the name of the one who brings it all to fulfillment is Jesus Christ. And it's because of what Jesus has done on the cross that we have confidence uh, in his resurrection from the dead that what has begun in him will be completed. And we, by faith, have communion with him. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, Master of all the ages, the one with a plan for time and eternity, we thank you that you have made us part of your charter for humanity, part of your kingdom plan to come to fulfillment. We have been placed into that by faith in your Son. We are undeserving. We don't deserve grace, but you've lavished it upon us anyway. We thank you and praise you for your mercies in Jesus, and we pray that our faith and confidence in your salvation would grow greater and greater, and that we would seek your glory above all else to the praise of the glory of your grace, and that in so doing we would find the fulfillment that you've promised to us in the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.